Um, so I'm going to just start sharing my screen with you. Let's see. I have a little PowerPoint. And I'm just going to share about my work. Um, so, yeah, I'm an artist. I just graduated from UC Davis. I also came out of Cal State Northridge from undergraduate degree. And I took a good, like, six years off in between and kind of, like, tried to figure myself out. And so this is just a conclusion pretty much as of last week. Um, so let's see where I'm at. I need to not share, stop share, and then make this actually go here. I think how do I do that? Share. Thank you for uh, listening to me. So everything can hear me? Does everything look good on your end? Okay, sounds good. So um, basically, why did I choose Davis, California? And why did I choose to go to grad school? I had a big turning point where I needed to like excavate my fat, my past and like um, go back to childhood. Um, and I started with a reflection to my childhood home. Um, and I thought like this would be a good opportunity for me to look into my own history of mobility because it still affects with me till, till this day. And this is my home in Stockton, California, um, post 9-11-2001. 9-11-2001 um, was a very significant moment. I turned 13 years old. It was my birthday. Uh, overnight within that moment, the political landscape of America also changed around me. And at that same moment, um, I was also undergoing an experimental knee, tibia, and like femur, titanium, endoprosthetic replacement. Um, it was due to uh, childhood cancer. So it was very like big culminating day and I was asleep the entirety of the day of 9-11. Um, but what is important is the days after I had to relearn how to walk within my new limitations, including a new sexualized form being 13 and an exoticized form as a teenager, a new political landscape, a new leg, um, and a whole new environment now visible from a different bodily perspective. And this is also like where I discovered my mobility as a means of being connected with and vulnerable to others. I, when you're in a hospital for over a year, you're very hyper aware of like all the kids around you and you're a kid and you're, you're empathic, you share a room with other children. And so, um, this vulnerability and connection with other children just like became very real at a young age and it just billowed from there. Um, from this recollection, I started with a large turning point in my life when I realized my full utter vulnerability to my surroundings and the differences of my life inside and outside the home, the maneuvering I had to do to mobilize myself on both ends of that sidewalk. And I think a lot about collective memory and material and connected histories in my work. At this time, there was a collective fear the very moment um, the, the U.S. realized it is also vulnerable with heightened fear to every person of the Swana region, second leading after, uh, specifically the white U.S. actually. I thought about um, being 12 and turning 13, getting prepped for surgery, and as the Twin Towers were hitting, the nurses were like muting the television and waking up the day after. Um, the day after, there were a constant news um, of uh, mur murders, and the murder of Balbir Singh Sodi really stood out to me. He was a Sikh American gas station owner, which led to a string of other murders. And um, 
this also made me within that moment, like made me realize how, um, on a cultural level, how this thing that I, that was very specific to the Arab region, the was tied to other people within other regions, regardless of the association with Islam. So clearly what I realized within that moment is regardless of what my faith is, there is this like notion sometimes that you get question of, are you Muslim? The closer, um, you get through generations, but the more we soften our indigenous edges, it gives us the illusion that we're walking closer to safety, um, that we're walking closer to whiteness. But no matter what I believe, the racial construct started to adopt Muslim as a member of and a construct, therefore it's, sub therefore it's subject to privileges and ramifications of upward mobility. And as we try to exist within the state, I started to relate that to like Jewish mobility and a lot of other immigrant mobility. Um, and this is just a vision board from last year. And I started exploring the kafea as a material itself. Um, so I'm just going to go into some history of what a kafea is. There's other names for a kafea, like a hata, a shafea, a shemach, um, and other names. And the kafea is a scarf that was originally worn on the heads of agricultural workers, mostly men, to protect them from the sun in Southwest Asia. It is believed by some that the kafea goes um, all the way back thousands of years to ancient Mesopotamia, and you can see it worn by Arabs, Assyrian, Kurds, Iranians, of varied ethnic backgrounds, and others today. And its symbology has grown in significance, and I've realized that the political significance today, although the kafea is used by like political parties, varied ethnic religion backgrounds, and also made of different materials, um, the black and white kafea was primarily at some point associated with the Palestinian liberation movement and the Arab revolt of the 1930s against the occupation of Palestine by Great Britain. It is a distinctive moment and I use the specific, use the specific, the kafea specifically as this unifying symbol of the Swana region. I like to think of the material as fascinating and its transformation to a utilitarian male gendered object rising up the ranks into different class systems from labor to royalty, from gender exclusivity to gender neutralness and to a cultural symbol of resistance. So like the material meaning of the cafe has shifted and from something that is very utilitarian to more of a symbolic object. And even though each cafe seems like they're all the same, um, they are similar, which unites them together, but the unique in its material makeup and pattern to every region. And, and also in which way you wear the headdress. Um, I like to think of the cafe sometimes as a crown worn like in the battle for human rights. Um, and as it's shifted uh, from like a utilitarian object of labor to royalty, you could see them made from like um, cotton to silk to wool, depending on the region. Um, this is an exploration I did um, last year, exploring the marketplace uh, as, as, as like very similar to like the marketplace in like um, LA, and that's where I'm at right now. Um, uh, so you can like associate to like the Korean marketplace or the Latino marketplace. There's definitely like a, a Swana marketplace that is a community-based place that needed to be addressed. Um, and then I started going to like, okay, how was the cafe worn? It was worn in Lebanon, in Syria, um, and then 
I significantly put this moment in there because this is Syria in the wake of the revolution at the border of Lebanon awaiting entrance. And like it was right after the revolution turned into a bloodbath. And um, although like Lebanon does welcome refu refugees, their relationship with refugees, I could find it very similar to America in which the border here between um, Central America and, and America to the Lebanon's relationship with refugees is also tumultuous in this in that state. Um, so these are things that I excavate like within both nations. Um, and then I started to think how did the cafe started to move and change in meaning? Well, as the military started to move into the Middle East from America, um, you could see uh, it started to get appropriated into military and hunting fashion. Um, and at some point was turned into like a festival play suit. And I started to follow like how the transformation of the cafe, I could follow it very similar to like the Jewish, the Jewish talent where very similarly trying to assimilate closer, the objects that are very symbolic and meaningful also get diluted and appropriated and um, changed. Um, so there's this material information so there's this material information that happens on a physical level and a symbolic level. And what I'm pointing to is that change of material meaning and those layers of that information. And I'm pointing this um, chart out in the theory of uh, racialized organizations by Victor Ray. Um, I was studying a lot with Professor Bruce Haynes in the sociology department at Davis. And he shared with me this chart that I truly felt was like an important very clear chart to share as it speaks to the concepts in the um it speaks to it speaks to the concept concepts in which um immaterial ideas lead to tangible results and that i also want to think how on um materials also have um uh memory and immaterial um ideas within them um So what we don't know um, at some point, we, like I've been told often is what we don't know, what we don't know, but like um, I'm trying to figure out like, um, okay, I, I don't know many things, but how can I bridge that gap? How can I figure out um, and, and find out information through material? And um, so I started to explore the sidewalk as well as the uh, cafe as this thing that has that I walk on that has the, all of this information within it. And these are protests much uh, previous to the protests that are happening today. Um, uh, and then I started to explore like artists as well um, and find artists that also use the sidewalk. So like Dred Scott, Adrian Piper, Laura Aguilar, Pope L, Osco, Harry Gamboya Jr., they've all channeled the sidewalk within the history within it in some form. Um, on the right was a very uh, a big moment for me when I, when I, I saw it um, and I, I saw that I thought, I was like, I, I just, um, 
you know, when you just wish that you saw something earlier and you're just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and then I was the performance artist of Pope L in 1991, where he crawled around the perimeter of, of, of Tompkins Square Park in New York. Um, and I just imagine the, um, uh, the information that's channeled um, within that crawl as well. Um, sorry. <laughs> So I'm gonna arrive to this point of I'm spinning where the sidewalk and the cafe started to merge together. Um, so I was reading and discussing uh, the work of Valerie Thomas, a scholar of African diaspora studies at Pomona College. And Professor Thomas introduced me to her own concepts of African diasporic vertigo as a method of healing and decolonizing the psyche. And um, and what Professor Thomas looks at is Black vernacular culture and home as structured by the liminal space of the crossroads archetype. So um, all, all, all the crossroads coming together and the related and relating these concepts. Um, and I started relating these concepts to uh, a social precarity. So the ideas of like, so the, the, the idea of what's happening is that it's putting a vernacular spin on what like um, Judith Butler has also spoken of within is uh, vertigo as both a sign of like colonial dislocation and disorientation and um, using ancient methodologies of healing, um, healing in order to like decolonize all of that. And it evokes this continuum vernacular experience and knowledge available to mediate contemporary experiences um, uh, as a whole, however, creating like this diasporic rupture so that it could create recovery. Um, so essentially what it's aiming to do is to find the equilibrium in like the spiritual freefall of all of the crossroads of, of all at once of who you are as you walk in space. And there was an aha moment that like came to me. Um, and within this piece actually is so essentially it's just two large pieces of sidewalk on top of each other with a steel lazy Sue's in the middle and the sidewalk spins in place. And it was like a big aha moment that I realized that there's room in our heads for all of this. Um, so there's room in our heads for like essentially like um, all parts of who you are as you walk through space. Um, so there's room for all these crossroads to be looked at and discussed simultaneously because that's how we essentially uh, present ourselves. Um, so here in both reclaiming yet morbidly mourning the erasure of the heavy swana symbology and the use of the cafeas, the cafeas were suffocated and layered under the, you could say like the cafeas were suffocated and layered under the industrial complex of city planning. Um, it's pretty straightforward as political comment on a macro scale. Um, but what I'm metaphorically speaking to on a micro scale are the small micro erasures of the self. So, um, I am losing my track. I am so sorry. So I'm just gonna like put all this away and wing it. So within this piece, I, lay I layered the, the cafes in them and started creating this cul-de-sac um within all of these symbols in there 
Um, and I started to think how, as my personal level as a Middle Eastern woman, how um, we essentially, when you come in America, you're kind of like trading the revolutionary, the resistance that we had back home for essentially a cul-de-sac um, or a more, or, or like a, 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 the idea of assimilation in the American dream. And this piece is called Trip Hazard, essentially uh, using way, wayfinding signs, concrete, and um, the cafeas. So within this part, I would love to speak to you about um, Peter Osborne. Um, the idea of the site and the non-site that could be used for semantic operations. Um, so essentially, um, a sidewalk just needed to be broken down into little bits and shattered um, because the information will be carried on regardless, uh, whether it be in a base photograph. So no matter how much this gets, um, removed, the information will still be there. Um, so moving forward, as I was thinking about the cul-de-sac, I was looking for an installation for this cul-de-sac and it ended up being within the garden wrapped around this bay tree. And um, when I was given the location, I was given uh, this bay tree, I thought of Daphne, and, and which Daphne and Apollo, the story, Apollo really wanted Daphne, and Daphne went to her father, the river god, and said, um, would you turn me into a tree rather than marry Apollo? And so her father turned her into a bay tree, and Apollo in return, uh, took her limbs and turned them into wreaths and put them on her head, on his head. And that was like a huge decoration within Greek mythology. Um, so within that illusion, I was, as I think about the cul-de-sac, I think about essentially as the space that was created so that it could dis politically disengage people um, from what's happening outside of like the, 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 the bubble of the neighborhood. It created um, the idea of hysteria for white women. It created um, the, the, the aspirations of the American dream um, for immigrants and is a place also that's completely inaccessible to, or not complete, but is, is not accessible and um, not available to black folks. So within this, there's just layers of access and privilege that I needed to address. At some point I decided to walk across the sidewalk because essentially my mobility is tied onto the backs of others um, and which made me super, I became very hyper aware of that after my studies and research over the past few years. Um, or really decade or 15 years of trying to 
grapple with and figure figure what's happening my place and what's happening around me um and the space that i take up and how my mobility is tied to others in a vulnerable state um but also uh is is attached to it uh, upwardly and there's things to like think about within that so if you'd like to like hear more you can email me <laughs>